0: Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. My name is Micah. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's some back here. John chapter 4 is where we will be. i um, very, very excited. Uh, if you are not familiar with where we're at, we're in a series called Theography. It's basically a, uh, an opportunity for me to teach and kind of walk through some of the things that I've learned uh, on this trip to Israel that I am fresh off of. Uh, I, in retrospect, I was thinking about last week, and I recognize that I move kind of fast sometimes. I know, I know. And uh, so for those of you last week who felt like you got hooked up to a fire hydrant, uh, I apologize for that. Today I'd like to focus on one thing. Wow. I know, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Um, and it has to do, and, and, and I heard lots of flack for not showing more pictures. <clears throat> but, you know, you got to be honest, right? You know, a guy like me in my position, it's kind of like, do you assume everybody wants to see your pictures? That'd be kind of weird. But you do. So I'm going to show you more pictures. So it's fine. So those of you over here, if you want to see more pictures, uh, just fair warning, there's a bunch of them here. Um, I want to focus on one idea this morning, and it comes from uh, early on in our trip, we went to a place called Dan the city of Dan, modern-day Dan. And uh, Dan, just uh, by way of background, Dan was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, so Jacob had 12 sons. Uh, This particular one, Dan was born to, so Jacob had two wives. His wives had a number of maidservants. Jacob had children by all of them. That's another topic for another day. One of them was Bilhah. She was a maidservant to Rachel. She bore Dan. Dan. Dan was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel, if you remember, were allotted land when they came into the promised land, so they were all given a portion of land. Um, and here's a, here's a picture of uh, uh, the 12 tribes of, of Israel, and basically Dan is right here along the western shore of the Mediterranean. Now, if you remember the story of the Israelites, they failed to uh, rid the land of a number of different people groups, which is another topic for another day, but... Um, be that as it may, the Phil- the Philistines and the Canaanites kind of gave them trouble throughout their whole time as Israel in the land. Um, one particular instance was for the tribe of Dan. The Philistines lived over here, and quite frankly, they liked their uh, their tiki huts and their uh, you know um, pina coladas on the Mediterranean. They wanted to stay there, and so they wouldn't let them settle. Bottom line is, the Danites had to move north, which is where they ended up settling up in this region up here. Um, Judges, the, uh, chapter 18, tells the story of the Danites moving north from uh, the western Mediterranean and moving north to a city called Laish. It's a Canaanite city that had been there for thousands of years. And they found this city, and they decided to attack it, and they decided to try to conquer it with the help of a prophet named Micha. That's Micah, just in case you didn't know. I actually don't play, I don't play a very good role in this story, so don't read Judges 18. <coughs> Well, if you want to know the story, it's in there. Um, so they, they they conquer this city. They attack it. They conquer it, and they resettle it, and they name it Dan. Dan becomes the capital city for the north. This is a city, uh, a gate that they found um, when they when they dug up Dan. By the way, in in Israel, in the Middle East, when they call something Tell dot dot dot. It means that there's like uh, uh, lots of layers of history and archaeology underneath it. And so they they do archaeological digs. So today, Tel Dan is right up here. Here's what they found when they unearthed Tel Dan. If you want to skip to that next slide. This is a picture of a gate, which was the original gate to the Canaanite city of Laish. It dates back to 1750 BC. That's like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yo. I mean, this is like a long time ago, right? Also, do du- duly noted you architects in the room. They say that the Romans created the arch. Actually, not true. Right here, clearly, clearly, friends, it's an arch dating back to long before the Romans ever arrived there. So they're not as smart as they think. Okay, <clears throat> sorry. Um, so this is actually this is actually called Abraham's Gate because in Genesis chapter fourteen. Abraham leaves you know, the trees of Mamre where he's hanging out and he goes and pursues his, Lot, his, his uh, nephew named Lot who's been kidnapped and he travels as far as what city? Dan, that's correct my friends, Dan. So they call this Abraham's gate. Um, so here's how this breaks down as far as the tribes are concerned. There's a united monarchy, there's a king named Jeroboam, Everybody has to go down to the city of Jerusalem in order to sacrifice. If you remember, there are three festivals in the life of Israel's, his, uh, in the life of Israel's calendar year where they had to travel to, to Jerusalem to sacrifice. They are for 3,000 Torah points, three festivals they have to travel for. Does anybody know any of them? Passover, good job, everyone. Sukkot and Shavuot, the the festival of booths and the festival of weeks. Three times they travel, that's all free, write it down. They all travel back to Jerusalem. Here's where this gets interesting. The northern tribes of of Israel, go back to that other slide if you would, the, the map there. The northern tribes who all live up here they're tired of traveling. It's a long ways to go. All they have is horses and camels and feet. So they write down to Jerusalem and they say, hey, here's the dealio. Any chance we could like set up some sort of deal where we don't all have to travel to Jerusalem and all get taxed when we come down there to buy all the things we need to buy? The king of Jerusalem at that time basically says, um, no way, and I'm going to tax you double. And, uh, and so it causes a rift between the tribes of Israel, and you get the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes. You following so far? Dan becomes the capital of the north. So because these people, they, they kind of say, you know, like, if you're not going to do that and listen to our, to our pleas, then we're going to do our own thing. And so they settle, they make their own kingdom in the north, and Dan becomes the king to, or the, the center of the kingdom in the north. It becomes a mini Jerusalem, so that the people wouldn't have to travel down to Jerusalem. Go ahead and to that next slide uh, past the, uh, there it is right there. So this is a bad map. I'm sorry, the light was terrible. But right here you have an altar, Right here you have the high places, or the Bema, where the, in, in, in Jerusalem, where the, uh, the Har- Ark of the Covenant would be. Over here is where all the priests do all their sort of priestly things. Now, I'll flip to the next slide. <clears throat> this is Tel Dan, modern-day Tel Dan. This is a reconstructed altar. Obviously, it's made of steel. But these steps were the steps leading up to the altar. These steps lead up to the high place, where the Ark, where the Torah would have been kept in, in the north. And these are the, uh, this is the, where all the priests would do their deal on the side there. So this is the modern day Dan, where where the Israelites of the north would do their sacrifices three times a year at the different festivals. Very interesting. <coughs> Here's a, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Next slide, please. <coughs> so this is the entrance to the city of Dan. Uh, <coughs> wow, this one's really, this is where the king would sit if there was like a You know, a a town issue, or there was a court case, or something that he would have to preside over. There was a little seat there, you could imagine. And that next slide, if you would, this is like the entrance to the city of Dan. Notice that there's not like a big, huge runway up to the gate. Rather, they would build the gates where they would walk up this way and then hang a left to get in, so that no army or aggressing force could get a whole head of steam and batter ram the the gates in the front. That's a little tidbit of information for you. So this is the this is Tel Dan, very interesting place. Now. Fast forward 1967, <coughs> six-day war, the Arab-Israeli War, if you remember this. Flip up that next slide, if you will. Over here on the left is pre-48. 48 is when Israel was considered a, a nation state by the, uh, the global community. So this was kind of what was Israel. Post-48, this is what was considered Israel, the blue. You have the West Bank which is essentially the west bank of the Jordan River, if you ever wonder what that means. And you have Gaza over here, which is a little city. This is called the Gaza Strip. So these are both still um, very tense and interesting places to be. Now, <clears throat> in 67, it gets really, really interesting. The Egyptians come up from the south, and they start putting all their uh, uh, military in Sinai, sort of poised with their rockets and ready to sort of attack Israel. The Jordanians in the east are allied with the Palestinian Arabs in the West Bank, and their plan is to sort of steamroll Israel into Jerusalem on their way to Tel Aviv. The Syrians in the north occupy this area right here, which is called the Golan Heights. It's a spine of a a very interesting spot. It's a spine, basically, and it goes straight down into the Sea of Galilee. Whoever occupies the Golan Heights looks from an elevated position over their enemy and their neighbor. Right, Very strategic location. So if Israel occupies it, they look over into Syria on this side. If Syria occupies it, they look into uh, Israel on that side. So in 67, the Syrians are lobbing mortar fire and sort of an, uh, aggressor uh, attacks towards the Israelis. And all of this is culminating in 67, which ends up being the Six-Day War. You can read about it. It's actually quite fascinating. Here's what wa- Why do I say all this? In the north, particularly right here, the Syrians and the Lebanese had one major issue. They were encroaching. They were constantly like encroaching on the on the Israelis. Any, 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 any ideas as to why? One major issue. Access to water. Water. Tell Dan happens to sit on one of the largest. Karstic Springs in all of the Middle East. It pumps out 300 cubic gallons of water per minute. It looks like this at its beginning. And a quarter mile down the road, it looks like this. It is the beginning of the Jordan River. It's one of three rivers that flow together that, that make up the Jordan, which feeds the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember that map, Israel's north to south. It's got a nice skinny waistline. From the Sea of Galilee all the way to the Dead Sea is called the Jordan River Valley or the Jordan Rift Valley. Friends, it is a desert. It's a desert. Flip to that next slide. This is what most of Israel looks like. It is barren. It's beautiful, but it is barren, hot, and dry for a large portion of the year. Um, And then that next one there. This is our trip from, from the Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in the south. This is what we passed by the entire time. Friends, here's, why, here's, here's the point I want to make about this. In the desert, water equals life. Like, there's no two ways around it. And I'm not talking about spiritual things here. If you do not have water, you die. Your plants die, your, your animals die, and you die. So why would the Israelites, the camp of Dan, why would they travel to the north and attack the city of Laish? Why? Because the spring was there. Why would the Israelites... Fight with tooth and nail to hang on to Dan while the Syrians lobbed mortar and the Lebanese wanted to divert their water. Why, why, why? Because water. The Jordan River literally, literally irrigates almost all of Israel. They pump water from the Jordan to Tel Aviv. If you do not have water, you die. The role of water in scriptures is quite important, right? You have the spirit hovering over the water at creation in Genesis. You have uh, four rivers in the garden that lead to one river, which leads to the tree of life. You have water as certainly as a source of destruction in the scriptures. Think of the flood Uh, in the desert when it rains up in the high mountains. There are these flash floods that happen in an instant and they take anything in its way, including roads. Water is it's uh, in, in the scriptures. The sea is a metaphor for evil. Think Jesus, right? He walks on the sea. He commands the sea. He calms the sea. In the scriptures, you find that water is a source of life. Psalm 23, you lead me beside still waters. The mikvah is a Jewish ritual bath that the Israelites would come in and cleanse themselves in that had constantly moving water, living water, they called it. Interesting. Hmm, I've heard that before. Uh, Water is, is absolutely a symbol that's connected to the deepest longings and desires of our heart. Now. As I learn about Dan, and as I learned about water, and I'm sitting in the desert thinking about all these things, I think of scriptures like, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longeth after you. My soul is like a parched and weary place. And these things start to come alive. I want you to, uh, if you're not there, John 4. <clears throat> We're going to start in verse 5. This is a well-known story, but I want to look at it from a different angle. And I want to look at it from the angle of desire, thirst, longing. Verse 5 says this. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by a well. It was about the sixth hour. Now imagine, okay, desert. High Galilean desert. Sits down by a well. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, "You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans?" And Jesus answered her, "If you knew the gift of God, who if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water." Sir the woman said, "You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself?" as did his sons and his flocks and herds. And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Here's the payday. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty, and have to keep coming to draw water. And he told her, go to your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. Jesus says, we open this story and this text. Would you open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see you for who you are? Would you give us the courage to stand in the places that we might be scared to stand in? Uh, We pray these things in your name amen what does it mean to be thirsty have you ever been really 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 thirsty i remember a trip in colorado we did a hiking trip i'm walking through the mountains of colorado and they all tell you hey make sure you bring water of course as a high school student you know everything that's correct you know everything And so I didn't bring any water, and so I'm wandering up in the mountains at like 13,000 feet. My head is about to explode. My lungs are popping out of my chest, and I'm like scraping the ground looking for water. You ever been there? What does it mean to be thirsty? And more than that, what does it mean to know that you are thirsty? What does it mean to to know that you desire something, that you have a longing? What does it mean to be in touch with the deepest longings of our hearts? Let me ask you this question. When was the last time you were close enough to your own longing that you knew what it was? And more than that, you had the courage to name it out loud. I think that we're actually afraid of our own desire. I think that many of us are afraid of the deepest longings and passions and thirsts that we have. For a number of different reasons. One, we ser- sometimes we actually think that they're evil. Uh, this is no thanks to a bad reading of Genesis chapter 3 and a uh, sort of a gospel of sin management that reduces the gospel down to what, how we fix sin. I want to suggest that your sin and your brokenness and however wretched you might think you are is actually not the truest sense of who you are. Maybe you're maybe you come from a totally different background than I do. but my background and, and my religious experience would tell me that it's my sin and my brokenness and my wretchedness and it's this big and it's this large and it's the thing that Jesus died for. And so I've been led to believe that the essence of who I am, the deepest desires of my heart, the passions that live within me, my longing to be loved, my longing to, be, to belong, my longings to have significance and worth, that those are actually bent towards sin and brokenness and that I shouldn't follow them or I shouldn't listen to them. And I want to suggest that that's actually a lie. If you take away sin, do you become more human or less human? If sin is taken off the table, if your brokenness is taken off the table, do you become more of who you are or less? I would suggest the answer is more. More. We're afraid of our desires because some of us think they're evil. We're afraid, of, we're afraid of getting what we want or not getting what we want. I mean, the deepest rivers of your soul and the things that you long for, that you thirst for, that maybe you have named and maybe you have not, those things, what if they came true? What if the floodgates opened up and it was like a spring of living water. Now you're responsible to it, aren't you? What if you can't live into it? Okay, this is for me. What if my my dreams came true? What if I couldn't live up to them? What if I was the one who lacked What if, if God really opens the floodgates, then I actually have to change? Do you remember the wildy coyote? Do you remember that guy? The coyote, the roadrunner and the coyote? What happens if the coyote catches the roadrunner? <laughs> it's interesting, but the, the authors of that show go to great lengths to make sure that the coyote does not catch the roadrunner. Right? I mean, TNT, that company is rubbish. Uh, Acme, no good. We're afraid of getting them. I think some of us are afraid of not getting them. Many of us have been let down, have been hurt, have been wounded by people, by religion, by church, by God. And if I put myself out there one more time and don't get it, It's over. How can I ever trust a God whom I am vulnerable with and I do not get the things that I most deeply long for and desire? I'm sure that's a question that only I wrestle with. Ruth Haley Barton says this Worse yet, what if I touch that place of longing and desire within me and let myself really feel how deep it goes? only to discover that those desires cannot be met. What will I do with myself then? How will I live with desire that is awake and alive rather than asleep and repressed? I wonder how many of us, because of our fear, live with a low-grade drip of anesthesia towards the deepest longings and desires of our hearts because we're afraid of them. And I want to suggest that this is robbing you of the potential to be fully human. Not only is this robbing you of the potential to be fully human, but this is robbing you to fully experience all that God has for you in a relationship with him. All the intimacy, all of the trust, all of the belonging. That these places that we live, where we hold it at bay just enough so that we can function, that they're robbing you. Now back to John 4 and verse 15. This one is just breathtaking. Jesus asks her for a drink of water and he sets her up. She, he says, I or she says, I can't give you water. You're a man, I'm a woman, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. And Jesus says, the water that I'm speaking of, it's living water. It's a different kind of water. It's like the bait, right? And she bites And he says, if you drink, you will never thirst again. The longings that you feel, the desires that you have, they will be met. Awkward, dramatic pause at the well. And what does she say? Will you give me Ultimate vulnerability. You talk about bravery. You talk about courage. The deepest desires and longings and thirsts of our hearts. What will we do with them? I want to suggest that it is here at this doorway, at this threshold of our heart's deepest longings and deepest desires and thirsts that the spiritual life begins because it is here deep down beneath the noise the layers the masks the fronts beneath your skills your accolades your accomplishments your abilities your failures your humiliations where the still waters of who you are in God it's this place and these things that We have to, we must, we've been invited to bring to God. This is in, take religion off the table, right? Take God off the table. This is psychology. This is like, this is good work that needs to be done among humans that we would have the courage to be vulnerable and they would show up with bravery, presenting ourselves authentically This is good work and forgiveness and healing and all kinds of things happen there. And this is good stuff. People are telling that humans we should do this. You go to Barnes & Noble and you'll find it everywhere. But I'm suggesting that this is not where rebirth happens. This is not where we are born again. But rather, when we take these things, the deepest longings of our hearts, the desires, the things we really actually feel, it's not until we bring those things before God that we are born again and we are made new and we we come alive This is the story of the woman at the well. This is the story of blind Bart on the road to uh, uh, Jericho. This is the story of all kinds of people who are healed by Jesus. Jesus comes and he asks them a simple question. This one's just arresting. What do you want? And so I would say it today. Do do, Do you even... No. When is the last time? Let's go back to that question. When is the last time you felt it? Whatever it was, deep, deep, deep. And did you let yourself feel or do we cut it off? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Kara to come and uh, we're going to close with uh, just a time. I want to g- kind of guide you, lead you, if you will, um, in, a, in a, a time of prayer and reflection. I want to invite you to use your imagination Uh, to the degree that we imagine things is the degree to which we understand them to be true. Uh, To the degree that we can see them in our mind's eyes, the degree to which we can be transformed by them. And so I want you to imagine. So whatever you do to kind of listen well, uh, close your eyes, bow your heads, kneel, um, whatever. And I want you to imagine a scenario. Mark tells it this way, a guy named Bartimaeus. Whose life has not ended up the way that he thought it would? In all sorts of ways, he has need. physical, emotional, communal, communal. He is uh, on the outside of in, in nearly every category. And he is on a crowded road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And there are people all around. And he sees Jesus. And somehow, we don't know how, we don't know the backstory, but he musters the courage to scream above the crowd Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And if you can imagine the scenario, everybody looks. And his disciples don't know what to do with it. It's awkward. It's vulnerable. And they try to dismiss him. But it's this Jesus who says, no. Where is he? Bring me to him. And it's Bartimaeus' vulnerability, his courage, to express, to name the deepest longing and thirst of his heart. I'd ask you three questions. Do you know what you're thirsty for? Many of us live with such busyness and this low-grade anesthesia that just numbs it enough. I want to invite you to consider that question. Not because it's religious, not because it's pop psychology, but because I believe it's connected to what it means to be human. Do you know what you're thirsty for? Are you in touch with the deepest longings, desires, and thirsts of your own heart? And last I would ask, do you have the courage to bring those to the God who made you? which is risky business. If God is anything like many of us grew up believing him to be like, it's not good. It will not go well for you. But if God is anything like Jesus, you're going to be just fine. online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awaken Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you okay. next time.